Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 28th of April for the listening week that begins the 29th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with a source called NiceNews.com. This was posted January 18th this year. Meet J.R. Harris, the 78-year-old explorer who travels the world and encourages kids to follow their dreams. Written by Rebecca Brandis. At 78 years old, J.R. Harris may not fit the stereotypical image of an active wilderness explorer, but the Louisiana-born adventurer has been devoted to the pursuit, pardon me, to the pursuit since he set off on his first excursion in 1966, and he has no plans of stopping anytime soon. In addition to hiking mountains, river rafting, and traveling to remote villages across the globe, globe, pardon me, Harris spends his time visiting public schools to encourage students to follow their dreams. The father of two is remarkably humble when asked about his status as a role model, but there's no denying he leads by example. He's the founder of the oldest African-American-owned research and consulting firm in the country, has explored at least 60 countries, written a book, and delivered a TEDx talk. I don't try to inspire anybody, and I don't try to specifically mentor anybody, Harris explained to Nice News. What I like to do is encourage people, especially young people, to broaden their horizons, to think bigger in terms of their future, and to not let people discourage them from having a dream and wanting to live it. Having moved to Queens, New York, as an infant, he grew up in a working-class family and lived in low-income housing. He was about as familiar with nature as any other city mouse when his parents sent him off to Boys Camp, pardon me, that's Boy Scouts Camp, in the Catskill Mountains. But by the end of the summer, Harris said, he was a different kid. He fell in love with the outdoors and, at 22 years old, made his first road trip from New York City to Circle, Alaska. After establishing himself in the field of wilderness exploration, Harris was elected to the Explorers Club in 1993. At the time, he was one of its few black members, according to CNN, Today, he is chair of the club's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and in 2021, launched the Society of Forgotten Explorers. It's important to Harris that he parlay his experience into helping others look at the world in different ways. When he saw a request in the Explorers Club newsletter asking for members who would be willing to go to New York City public schools to talk to kids, he believed he might be able to make an impact. When I go to a school now and I look out in the auditorium at the kids that are sitting there, 
I'm basically looking at kids who are really me all those years ago, he explained. There is at least one difference, though, between him and the students he speaks to. When I grew up, I never heard of any black explorers, he shared. I never heard of Matthew Henson. I never heard of Jim Beckworth. And so there were no people to look up to. There were no people to say, yeah, I might like to do that. But though he himself now serves as someone for the next generation to look up to, Harris doesn't focus solely on encouraging children to explore the wilderness as he did. My message was more, exploration was always my dream. You can have a different dream, but whatever your dream is, you should do that. He said later, adding, I say, hey, give it some thought, break some boundaries, and, you know, get out your pardon me, get out of your comfort zone. Although his speaking engagements, which also include presentations for adults, are important to Harris, he's still devoted to exploration. My three things are curiosity, adventure, and what I can learn, he explained. Luckily, he's able to combine giving back with seeing the world. His next big trip will be guiding a group of teenagers and young adults on an excursion to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, teaching them leadership and survival skills, helping them perform science experiments on the mountain, and hopefully providing the group with an invaluable bonding experience. He said, it doesn't take anything away from me to give somebody else encouragement or motivation. Following that, to the website for the Explorers Club, they are at www.explorers.org. I'll just read a little bit about that in case you are interested. The Society of Forgotten Explorers. Throughout the course of history, men and women have roamed the earth in search of knowledge and enlightenment. Some of their explorations and discoveries have changed the course of human development in important ways, even as the names of these intrepid individuals have often been forgotten. As an international organization dedicated to the ideal that it is vital to preserve the instinct to explore, the Explorers Club is in a unique position to recognize and show appreciation for the contributions of those overlooked pioneers who never received the gratitude that they have earned. With this in mind, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee will initiate a Society of Forgotten Explorers. This designation will honor unknown, lesser known, or unsung explorers from underrepresented communities and ethnicities and tell their stories. These Pardon me, these will be men and women who are deceased, with emphasis on indigenous as well as female explorers, and who were not elected Explorers Club members or were active before the Explorers Club was founded. Examples of those who might be considered are the four Inuit explorers who accompanied Peary and Henson on their journey to the North Pole, or Esteban de Durantes, Teresa Littledale, Harkoof the Egyptian, Bessie Coleman, or York the slave who was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition. 
Since the club's bylaws do not provide for a category of posthumous membership, the Society of Forgotten Explorers will be an appropriate vehicle to highlight the diversity of past explorers and the contributions they have made. By establishing a Society of Forgotten Explorers, the club seeks to honor noteworthy, non-traditional explorers from antiquity, details regarding nominations, selection, storytelling, etc. will be coming soon. And this was originally posted December 20 for pardon me, December 23rd, 2021. And one further note. Matthew Henson, who was mentioned in the first article. This comes from The Guardian. Matthew Henson, the pioneering African-American Arctic adventurer. This multi-skilled explorer may well have been the first to the North Pole in 1909. What's not in doubt is his resourcefulness and love of the Inuit. Passport Details Matthew Alexander Henson, perhaps the first person to the North Pole, born Charles County, Maryland, U.S., 8th of August, 1866. Claim to fame. Matthew Henson, the descendant of slaves, has a plausible claim to being the first explorer to reach the North Pole. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, was orphaned, and left school at 12 to become a cabin boy. When he was 22, a chance encounter with naval engineer Robert Peary resulted in a lifelong working relationship, including 18 years of Arctic exploration. On the 6th of April, 1909, Henson, Perry, and four Inuit drove their dog sleds to the North Pole, or as near as makes no difference. Perry took the credit for being first, but a newspaper article on their return quoted Henson as saying he'd been part of a leading group that had overshot the pole by several miles. Quote, We went back then, and I could see my footprints were the first at the spot. Supporting Documentation Henson's engaging 1912 memoir, titled A Negro Explorer at the North Pole, reads like a boy's own adventure. Henson's dog-handling skills, fluid Inuit, and all-round resourcefulness were key to the expedition's success. I have a steady job carpentering, also interpreting, barbering, tailoring, dog training, he writes. The warmth of his response to the Inuit is striking. I have come to love these people. They are my friends and regard me as theirs. The memoir's final page includes the names of 218 Inuit from Smith Sound, on Canada's Ellesmere Island. Among them are Ataking, pardon me, Akatingwa, Henson's Inuit lover, and Anak Anuaka, pardon me, that's Anuakak, their son. Distinguishing Marks Henson lived a long life. Photographs show him on board ship and as a genial old codger but the most arresting image was taken after that dash to the pole. He peers out of his fur parka, quietly challenging assumptions of what an Arctic explorer might look like to some. Intrepidus, 
pardon me again, intrepidness rating. Obstacles he faced included ice flows, snowstorms, frostbite, and racism. Next article is a follow-up from recent news. Comes from the New York Times. The College Board will change its AP African American Studies course. The course had run into criticism from scholars who accused the board of omitting key concepts and bending to political pressure from Governor Ron DeSantis. This was posted April 24th, written by Dana Goldstein and Stephanie Saul. And there's a note at the top. An AP African American Studies class at Baton Rouge Magnet High School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in January. The College Board had repeatedly denied that politics had anything to do with its changes to the curriculum. Oh, that is underneath a photo. That's just simply a picture of the classroom. The College Board said on Monday that it would revise its Advanced Placement African American Studies course less than three months after releasing it to a barrage of criticism from scholars who accused the board of omitting key concepts and bending to political pressure from Governor Ron DeSantis, who had said he would not approve the curriculum for use in Florida. While written in couched terms, the College Board's statement appeared to acknowledge that in its quest to offer the course to as many students as possible, including those in conservative states, it had watered down key concepts. Quoting, in embarking on this effort, access was our driving principle, both access to a discipline that has not been widely available to high school students and access for as many of those students as possible, the College Board wrote on its website. Regrettably, along the way, those dual access goals have come into conflict. The Board, which did not respond immediately to an interview request, said on its website that a course development committee and experts within the advanced placement staff would determine the changes over the next few months. The College Board, pardon me, yes, the College Board, a billion-dollar nonprofit that administers the SAT and AP courses, ran headlong into a conflict between two sides unlikely to find any room for compromise. Black Studies scholars believe that concepts the board de-emphasized, like reparations, Black Lives Matter, and intersectionality, are foundational to the college-level discipline of African American studies. Conservatives, politicians, activists, and some parents, believe the field is an example of liberal orthodoxy, and they are concerned that schools have focused too much on issues such as racism and systemic oppression. Some leading scholars in Black Studies have signed petitions calling on the College Board to revise the course and are planning a nationwide day of protest on May 3rd around, quote, freedom to teach and to learn. Civil rights groups and teachers' union leaders are also set to participate. The College Board, which relies on state participation to administer its courses and tests, had denied that politics had anything to do with its changes to the curriculum, but over the course of last year, the board repeatedly discussed the content of the class with Florida officials, 
who objected to specific ideas that were later removed or de-emphasized. In January, Mr. DeSantis announced that Florida would not allow the course to be offered in its high schools, saying that it was not historically accurate and violated state law. In its written statement, the College Board said an updated course, quote, shaped by the Development Committee and subject matter experts from AP, will ensure that those students who do take this course will get the most holistic possible introduction to African American studies. Some experts are wary. Cheryl Harris, a legal scholar at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a leading thinker in the field of critical race theory, has helped organize the May 3rd protest. In an interview on Monday, she said she hoped the College Board had learned that it could not appease a political movement that, in her words, was seeking to censor and suppress ideas. An analysis last year by the education publication Chalkbeat found that 36 states had moved toward restricting education on race. Professor Harris argued that scholars whose ideas had been removed from the advanced placement course should be included in the process to revise the curriculum, to reestablish trust within the discipline, and, quote, bring some degree of transparency to the development process. She named, among others, Kimberly Crenshaw, the originator of the concept of intersectionality, which refers to the complex ways that overlapping facets of identity, such as race, class, sex, and gender, shape individual experiences of the world. The College Board has had high hopes for the course, introducing it at a glittery reception in February at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, part of the Smithsonian. In its recent statement, the board said that interest in the African-American studies class was widespread across the country, with 800 schools and 1,600 students expected to take the pilot course during the next school year, which is up from 60 schools this year. Matthew Guterl, a professor of Africana and American Studies at Brown, had criticized the curriculum as, quote, lacking the intellectual heft and moral urgency that students needed. Reacting to the news that the College Board planned to revise the curriculum once again, he said, they may now realize that they can't be supplicants to Ron DeSantis any longer. And also from the New York Times, this was posted April 13th, he started the first police academy at an HBCU. It was complicated. Chief Gary Hill on how to get more black officers on the force and transform cop culture through training. Uh, let's see. Written by... Well, actually, this was originally a podcast, and I apologize that they never did post the entire transcript, so what I'll read here is just a, an abbreviation. And it was produced by Derek Arthur and Olivia Natt. When Chief Gary Hill was a police recruit in Missouri in the 1990s, he was one of two black students in his academy class. Although he has faced racism in his years on the force since then, he believes that policing can be a public good. 
and that reimagining approaches to recruiting and training can inspire necessary changes within the ranks. So, in 2020, Hill started a police academy at Lincoln University and HBCU in Jefferson City. But his efforts come at a particularly fraught time. For one thing, the number of police officers around the country is dropping at a startling rate, especially the number of black officers. And at the same time, high-profile killings of black Americans by police have deepened the distrust many minority communities feel toward law enforcement. Hill's Academy is predicated on the idea that individuals can change police culture from within the system. But first, he'll have to get students in the classroom to help him make his case. Next, still from the New York Times, a remembrance for Harry Belafonte. This was written by Peter Keep News, published April 25th. Harry Belafonte, 96, dies. Barrier-breaking singer, actor, and activist. In the 1950s, when segregation was still widespread, his ascent to the upper echelon of show business was historic, but his primary focus was civil rights. Harry Belafonte, who stormed the pop charts and smashed racial barriers in the 50s with his highly personal brand of folk music, and who went on to become a dynamic force in the civil rights movement, died on Tuesday at his home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He was 96. The cause was congestive heart failure, said Ken Sunshine, his longtime spokesman. At a time when segregation was still widespread and black faces were still a rarity on screens, both large and small, Mr. Belafonte's ascent to the upper echelon of show business was historic. He was not the first black entertainer to transcend racial boundaries. Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, and others had achieved stardom before him, but none had made as much of a splash as he did, and for a while no one in music, black or white, was bigger. Born in Harlem to West Indian immigrants, he almost single-handedly ignited a craze for Caribbean music with hit records like Deo, the Banana Boat Song, and Jamaica Farewell. His album, Calypso, which included both of those songs, reached the top of the Billboard album chart shortly after its release in 1956 and stayed there for 31 weeks. Coming just before the breakthrough of Elvis Presley, it was said to be the first album by a single artist to sell more than a million copies. Mr. Belafonte was equally successful as a concert attraction, Handsome and charismatic, he held audiences spellbound with dramatic interpretations of a repertoire that encompassed folk traditions from all over the world, rollicking calypsos like Matilda, work songs like Lead Man Holler, tender ballads like Scarlet Ribbons. By 1959, he was the most highly paid black performer in history, with fat contracts for appearances in Las Vegas at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, and at the Palace in New York. Success as a singer led to movie offers, and Mr. Belafonte soon became the first black actor to achieve major success in Hollywood as a leading man. His movie stardom was short-lived, though, 
and it was his friendly rival, Sidney Poitier, not Mr. Belafonte, who became the first bona fide black matinee idol. But making movies was never Mr. Belafonte's priority, and after a while neither was making music. He continued to perform into the 21st century and to appear in movies as well, although he had two long hiatuses from the screen. But his primary focus from the late 1950s on was civil rights. Early in his career, he befriended the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and became not just a lifelong friend, but also an ardent supporter of Dr. King and the quest for racial equality he personified. He put up much of the seed money to help start the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was one of the principal fundraisers for that organization and Dr. King's Southern Christian Leader, pardon me, Leadership Conference. He provided money to bail Dr. King and other civil rights activists out of jail. He took part in the March on Washington in 1963. His spacious apartment on West End Avenue in Manhattan became Dr. King's home away from home and he quietly maintained an insurance policy on Dr. King's life, with the King family as the beneficiary, and donated his own money to make sure that the family was taken care of after Dr. King was assassinated in 1966. Parentheses. Nonetheless, in 2013, he sued Dr. King's three surviving children in a dispute over documents that Mr. Belafonte said were his property, and that the children said belonged to the King estate. The suit was settled the next year with Mr. Belafonte retaining possession. In an interview with the Washington Post a few months after Dr. King's death, Mr. Belafonte expressed ambivalence about his high profile in the civil rights movement. He would like to be able to stop answering questions as though I were a spokesman for my people, he said, adding, I hate marching and getting called at 3 a.m. to bail some cats out of jail. But he said he accepted his role. The Challenge of Racism In the same interview, he noted ruefully that although he sang music with roots in the black culture of American Negroes, Africa, and the West Indies, most of his fans were white. As frustrating as that may have been, he was much more upset by the racism that he confronted even at the height of his fame. His role in the 1957 movie Island in the Sun, which contained the suggestion of a romance between his character and a white woman played by John Fontaine, generated outrage in the South. A bill was even introduced in the South Carolina legislature that would have fined any theater showing the film. In Atlanta, for a benefit concert for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1962, Mr. Belafonte was twice refused service in the same restaurant. Television appearances with white female singers Petula Clark in 1968, Julie Andrews, pardon me, Julie Andrews in 1969, angered many viewers and, in the case of Miss Clark, threatened to cost him a sponsor. He sometimes drew criticism from black people, including the suggestion early in his career that he owed his success to the lightness of his skin. His paternal grandfather and maternal grandmother were white. When he divorced his wife in 1957 and married Julie Robinson, who had been the only white member of Catherine Dunham's dance troupe 
the Amsterdam News wrote. This, many Negroes are wondering why a man who has waved the flag of justice for his race should turn from a Negro wife to a white wife. When RCA Victor, his record company, promoted him as the King of Calypso, Mr. Belafonte was denounced as a pretender in Trinidad, the acknowledged birthplace of that highly rhythmic music, where an annual competition is held to choose a Calypso king. He himself never claimed to be a purist when it came to Calypso or any of the other traditional styles he embraced, let alone the king of Calypso. He and his songwriting collaborators loved folk music, he said, but saw nothing wrong with shaping it to their own ends. He told the New York Times in 1959, Purism is the best cover-up for mediocrity. If there is no change, we might just as well go back to the first UG, which must have been the first song. Harold George Belafonte Jr. was born on March 1, 1927, in Harlem. His father, who was born in Martinique and later changed the family name, worked occasionally as a chef on merchant ships and was often away. His mother, Melvin, nickname Love, or perhaps last name Love, in any case it's in parentheses, Melvin Love Belafonte, born in Jamaica, was a domestic. In 1936, Harry, his mother, and his younger brother, Dennis, moved to Jamaica. Unable to find work there, his mother soon returned to New York, leaving him and his brother to be looked after by relatives, who he later recalled were either unemployed or above the law. They rejoined her in Harlem in 1940, awakening to black history. Mr. Belafonte dropped out of George Washington High School in Upper Manhattan in 1944 and enlisted in the Navy, where he was assigned to load munitions aboard ships. Black shipmates introduced him to the works of W.E.B. Du Bois and other African-American authors and urged him to study black history. He received further encouragement from Marguerite Byrd, the daughter of a middle-class Washington family, whom he met while he was stationed in Virginia, and she was studying psychology at the Hampton Institute, now Hampton University. They married in 1948. He and Miss Byrd had two children, Adrian Beismeyer and Sherry Belafonte, who survived him, as do his two children by Miss Robinson, Gina Belafonte and David, as well as eight grandchildren. He and Miss Robinson divorced in 2004, and he married Pamela Frank, a photographer, in 2008, and she survives him too, along with a stepdaughter, a stepson, and three step-grandchildren. Back in New York after his discharge, Mr. Belafonte became interested in acting and enrolled in the GI Bill, pardon me, under the GI Bill at Irwin Piscator's Dramatic Workshop where his classmates included Marlon Brando and Tony Curtis. He first took the stage at the American Negro Theater in Manhattan, where he worked as a stagehand and where he began his lifelong friendship with a fellow theatrical novice, Sidney Portier. Finding anything other than what he called Uncle Tom roles proved difficult, and even though singing was little more than a hobby, it was as a singer and not an actor that Mr. Belafonte found an audience. Early in 1949, he was given the chance to perform during intermissions for two weeks at the Royal Roost, a popular midtown jazz nightclub. 
He was an immediate hit, and the two weeks became five months. After enjoying some success but little creative satisfaction as a jazz-oriented pop singer, Mr. Belafonte looked elsewhere for inspiration with the guitarist Millard Thomas, who would become his accompanist, and the playwright and novelist William Attaway, who would collaborate on many of his songs, he immersed himself in the study of folk music. His manager, Jack Rollins, helped him develop an act that emphasized his acting ability and his striking good looks as much as a voice that was husky and expressive, but, as Mr. Belafonte admitted, not very powerful. A triumphant 1951 engagement at the Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village led to an even more successful one at the Blue Angel, the Vanguard's upscale sister, on the Upper East Side. That led to a recording contract with RCA and a role on Broadway in the 1953 review John Murray Anderson's Almanac. Performing a repertoire that included the Calypso standard Hold'em Joe and his arrangement of the folk song Mark Twain, Mr. Belafonte won enthusiastic reviews, television bookings, and a Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. He also caught the eye of the Hollywood producer Otto Priminger, who cast him in a 54-movie version of Carmen Jones, an all-black update of Bizet's opera Carmen, with lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. Mr. Belafonte's co-star was Dorothy Dandridge, with whom he had also appeared the year before in his first movie, the little-seen, low-budget drama called Bright Road. Although they were both accomplished vocalists, their singing voices in Carmen Jones, pardon me, Carmen Jones were dubbed by opera singers. Mr. Belafonte also made news for a movie he turned down citing what he called as negative racial stereotypes. The 1959 screen version of Porgy and Bess, also a Priminger film. The role of Porgy was offered instead to his old friend, Mr. Portier, whom he criticized publicly for accepting the role. Stepping away from film. In the 60s, as Mr. Portier became a major box office attraction, Mr. Belafonte made no movies at all. Hollywood, he said, was not interested in the socially conscious films he wanted to make, and he was not interested in the roles he was offered. He did, however, become a familiar presence and an occasional source of controversy on television. His special, Tonight with Belafonte, won an Emmy in 1960. That was a first for a black performer. But a deal to do five more specials for that show's sponsor, Revlon, fell apart after one more was broadcast. Revlon asked him not to feature black and white performers together. The taping of a 1968 special with Petula Clark was interrupted when Ms. Clark touched Mr. Belafonte's arm and a representative of the sponsor, Chrysler Plymouth, demanded a retake. Parentheses. The producer refused and the sponsor's representative later apologized, although Mr. Belafonte said the apology came 100 years too late. When Mr. Belafonte returned to film as both a producer and a co-star with Zero Mostel and The Angel Levine, based on a story by Bernard Malamud, that project had a socio-political edge. 
his Harry Belafonte Enterprises hired 15 black and Hispanic apprentices to learn filmmaking by working on the crew. One of them, Drake Walker, wrote the story for Mr. Belafonte's next movie, Buck and the Preacher, from 1972, which is a gritty western that also starred Mr. Portier. But after appearing as a mob boss, which was a parody of Marlon Brando's character in The Godfather, with Mr. Portier and Bill Cosby in the hit comedy from 74, Uptown Saturday Night. Mr. Belafonte was once again absent from the big screen until 1992, when he played himself in Robert Altman's satire, The Player. Political activism. Mr. Belafonte continued to give concerts in the years when he was off the screen, but he concentrated on political activism and charitable work. In the 1980s, he helped organize a cultural boycott of South Africa, as well as a Live Aid concert and the all-star recording, We Are the World, both of which raised money to fight famine in Africa. In 1986, encouraged by some New York State Democratic Party leaders, he briefly considered running for the United States Senate. In 1987, he replaced Danny Kay as UNICEF's goodwill ambassador. Never shy about expressing his opinion, he became increasingly outspoken during the George W. Bush administration. In 2002, he accused Secretary of State Colin L. Powell of abandoning his principles to come into the house of the master. Four years later, he called Mr. Bush the greatest terrorist in the world. Mr. Belafonte was equally outspoken in the 2013 New York mayoral election, in which he campaigned for the Democratic candidate and eventual winner, Bill de Blasio. During that campaign, he referred to the Koch brothers, the wealthy industrialists known for their support of conservative causes, as white supremacists and compared them to the Ku Klux Klan. And Mr. de Blasio quickly distanced himself from that comment. Such statements made Mr. Belafonte a frequent target of criticism, but no one disputed his artistry. Among the many honors he received in his later years were a Kennedy Center Honor, a National Medal of the Arts, and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2014, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences gave him its Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award in recognition of his lifelong fight for civil rights and other causes. The honor, he told the Times, gave him a strong sense of reward. He remained politically active to the end. On Election Day 2016, the Times published an opinion article by him urging people not to vote for Donald J. Trump, whom he called feckless and immature. Mr. Trump asks us to have, pardon me, Mr. Trump asks us what we have to lose, he wrote, referring to African-American voters, and we must answer, only the dream, only everything. Four years later, he returned to the opinion pages with a similar message. We have learned exactly how much we had to lose, a lesson that has been inflicted upon black people again and again in our history, and we will not be bought off by the empty promises of the flim-flam man. Looking back on his life and career, Mr. Belafonte was proud but far from complacent. 
About my own life I have no complaints, he wrote in his autobiography. Yet the problems faced by most Americans of color seem as dire and entrenched as they were half a century ago. Next, turning to theroot.com under their environmental justice. Earth Day 2023. Cancer Alley Should Never Happen Again. Can Biden Really Fix It? Written by Jessica Washington, published April 21st. President Joe Biden, to sign an executive order to advance environmental justice, three things to know. With Earth Day nearly upon us, President Joe Biden is set to sign an executive order creating an Office of Environmental Justice. This EO is just the latest step in the White House's pledge to take access to clean air and water seriously in communities hit the hardest by pollution. Black Americans certainly don't need to be reminded that the United States has an environmental racism problem. What's happened in places like Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi is a clear enough indication that we have an issue. But the question at the moment is whether this new White House initiative is up to the task of meaningfully addressing this crisis. Here are the three things you should know about Biden's new executive order. What does Biden's environmental justice order do? The biggest thing to know about Biden's new executive order is that it creates a brand new White House Office of Environmental Justice, tasked with coordinating the White House's new directives. At least symbolically, this is a sign that the White House is paying attention to the growing calls that it's no longer acceptable for people of color and lower-income communities to be this country's dumping ground. But outside of the symbolic nature of the new executive order, it's worth paying attention to the new requirements Biden is ushering in today. First and foremost, the executive order will require federal agencies to notify and hold public meetings with nearby communities when toxic substances are released from federal facilities. Federal agencies will also be required to conduct assessments of their environmental justice efforts through a new scorecard. Additionally, these agencies will be tasked with developing, implementing, and periodically updating a strategic plan to address environmental justice. Will Biden's executive order on environmental justice work? The short and unsatisfying answer to this question is that it's way too soon to tell how effective this new executive order will be. While this is undoubtedly a step in the right direction, Biden certainly won't be seeing any assistance on this issue from Congress with Republicans in control of the House. In fact, House Republicans recently passed a bill that would undo nearly all of Biden's climate change and environmental justice agenda by giving oil and mining companies increased access to public lands, including tribal lands. It's hard to imagine the White House making a serious dent in the massive quality of life disparities in the U.S. without partners in Congress or in the states with the most significant pollution and water quality problems like Mississippi. Why should black Americans care about Biden's new EO? Environmental justice is undeniably a black issue. According to the U.S. Water Alliance, 
Race is the strongest predictor of access to clean water and sanitation. Time and time again, we've seen horrific examples of black communities suffering from either neglect or in some cases outright being used as dump sites for toxic chemicals. Take Cancer Alley. For decades, black Americans in the St. John the Baptist Parish of Louisiana were subjected to deadly chemicals from a petrochemical plant set up right next to their neighborhood. Only last month did the U.S. Department of Justice take action against the two companies after generations of families breathed in the toxic cancer-causing emissions. In Jackson, Mississippi, decades of neglect of the water system have led to disastrous consequences for the predominantly black community. Those examples are just the tip of the iceberg regarding environmental racism in the United States. The fact that the White House is at least calling the issue out for what it is matters, but it'll take a massive, coordinated effort to even begin to address the level of environmental inequality in this country. Another one from the New York Times, this one not quite so long. Poised for change at a company where dancers of color feel at home. Three senior dancers at Dance Theater of Harlem reflect on working with Virginia Johnson, who is stepping down as its leader. This was posted April 21st by Charmaine Patricia Warren. Before they were members of Dance Theater of Harlem, Lindsay Donnell Ingrid Silva and Stephanie Ray Williams were each the only black student in their hometown dance classes. As young dancers taught by white instructors, they had to navigate not only building a career in dance, but building a career as black ballerinas. If they joined a predominantly white company, would they be made to feel invisible? For Donnell, Silva, and Williams, and many more like them, Dance Theater of Harlem, or DTH, with a mission of showcasing black excellence in ballet, became their goal. Founded in 1969 by Arthur Mitchell, a star of New York City Ballet, and his teacher Carol Shook, in response to the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dance Theater of Harlem broke barriers in ballet and introduced the world to exemplary black ballerinas. Among the finest was Virginia Johnson, a founding member who helped resurrect the company after it had been forced to shut in 2004 because of financial problems. Johnson took over as artistic director in 2010, and the company began performing again in 2012. Now she is moving on, and the dance theater at Center, pardon me, at City Center through Sunday well, that's old news now, we'll have a new leader in the choreographer Robert Garland. With the company in transition, I talked on Zoom to its senior dancers, Donnell from Texas, who declined to give her age, the Brazilian-born Silva, 35, and Williams, 34, from Salt Lake City, about working with Johnson, life in the company, and how the landscape has changed for dancers of color. The following are edited excerpts from that conversation. What do you cherish most about working with Virginia? Williams said, 
Virginia spent a lot of time coaching us and giving us private lessons, especially in her first three years as director of the ensemble. Parentheses. The ensemble was formed in 2008 to showcase a small touring group of the school's senior students. And when the company returned in, pardon me, in 2012, we had private lessons scheduled into our day. In our sessions, we worked on taking away all that I was doing with my face and my expression to find the cleanest technique. We worked for years on improving my arabesque so it could be the best, cleanest, just pure. Donnell said, Virginia's always working on our focus. She says your eyes tell too much. Oh, pardon me again. She says your eyes tell so much. In ballet, they are certain head tilts, and your eyes are toward the corner. But she always asked me to see something, develop a story, and then show it to her through the movement. Silva says, the private coaching was really good because she also got to know us. She also, pardon me, she always wanted me to move big and connect my movements. I used to have this variation in Vessels by Daryl Grand Moultrie, and she coached me in every step. We were going for hours on that solo. So this is the first thing that she polished in my dance journey. That was the beginning of everything for me. Next question. What's your first memory of stepping into Dance Theater of Harlem's famous building? Silva. I saw what I've always looked for in a dance room. A room full of people that looked like me. Donnell. I remember being at bar on the first day in Studio 3 with the beautiful red brick and not having ever experienced seeing a multitude of beautiful black and brown skin. I was like, oh, this is different. Williams. It was for my audition. There was this big picture of Arthur Mitchell and the red brick. And then putting on brown tights for the first time, I knew I couldn't show up in pink tights, but I had never really danced in brown tights. So it's not like they matched my skin tone or anything. A total giveaway that it was my first time in the building. Next question. What's the T on dance theaters auditions? Tell me about yours. Williams. In 2010, there were whispers on the street that Virginia Johnson was coming back and she's going to start the new DTH. Black ballet dancers in New York City were asking, is this really happening? Anyone who's auditioned for DTH knows it's not an easy audition. I didn't know if I got it right away. I called my mom as I was walking back to the subway down Sugar Hill on St. Nick and I said, oh my gosh, mom, I walked into that building and it felt like I had come home. Virginia hired me for the ensemble, and I've been with the company ever since. Silva. Mr. Mitchell hired me in 2008, and I still make jokes about the long audition, too. He saw a lot of things in me that I didn't. I was very shy, and the language thing didn't help at first because I was discovering everything. I remember doing barrel turns in class, and he would say, You have to look up. You have to come to the front and be present. You didn't come all the way from Brazil to look at the floor and Donnell. Virginia hired me in 2012, and I remember how long the audition was because you went through the ballet class, bar, center, and classical variation, and then they didn't call my number. 
I was really upset, but they were still going to do partnering, so I decided to stay by the door and take off my point shoes. They had an extra man, and I heard, Hey, Lindsay, why don't you just do partnering with him? And so I put a thousand percent into the partnering section and ended up getting the job. I always think maybe it was my partnering skills, but I wonder if I was called on purpose or it was an accident. Oh my God, I guess I should ask Virginia before she leaves. Next question. Did you know that pink tights and shoes were not allowed at dance theater and that pancaking, powdering your shoes with makeup, was the norm before skin tone shoes were made? Danelle. When I first came to DTH, it felt foreign to wear skin tone tights because pink is the classic look. When I guessed it out for my first nutcracker at the American Dance Theater of Long Island, I danced the role of the Sugar Plum Fairy and I was like, well, Sugar Plum is pink. So that year I wore pink tights, pink tutu, and pink shoes. But the next year I wore brown shoes and brown tights. All the moms that I had made friends with from the previous year were like, Wow, Lindsay, that change of attire continues your line and shows your body. I feel like I'm watching you dance rather than a costume. Ever since then, I only wear brown. Wearing pink feels like an accessory rather than dancing from my soul. Williams what is incredible is that in the 21st century, everyone is wearing tights that are their skin tone. Maybe not in every ballet company, but everyone's doing it. Freed, Block, and these big manufacturing companies are making shoes that match people's skin tone. It's showing that the legacy of Dance Theater of Harlem for the last 53 years has extended outside of the building, outside of Harlem. Next question, Robert Garland's return is a funky mix of African-American vernacular and neoclassical steps to recordings by James Brown and Aretha Franklin. Was learning that a rite of passage? Williams, oh my gosh, return is the first thing the dancers learn in the ensemble, and those rhythm and ball changes that you don't learn in ballet, but you learn in jazz and tap, that was a challenge. But the more it gets in your body, you find the rhythm and you understand. I just put the music on, and then it's there. Donnell, doing something outside of my ballet vocabulary, I was just like, what? I was trying to include those ballet nuances, and I was ignoring the groove of it. I had to reorient myself, put on another hat, make the ballet parts very clean, and then really get down on the get-down parts. Mr. Garland knows the importance of building the community and shepherding younger dancers. How do you see the ballet landscape in New York City today in terms of diversity? How does dance theater fit in? Silva. Other companies still have a lot to do. I agree that they're doing it, but I would love to see them push further and give more opportunity to black artists. There are a lot of talented dancers who need opportunities, and we need to make this happen. Williams. I'm seeing more dancers of color. I'm seeing more openness to different styles of dance in mixed repertory programs. I'm seeing more women choreographers of color going to major companies, and I think that Arthur Mitchell and Virginia Johnson's work uptown at Dance Theater of Harlem is responsible for some of that. And that's the end and brings us to the end of our time this week. 
Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funding from the city and county of Broomfield. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.